we all watched the Access Hollywood tape back in 2015. They're going to cling right to him if it's going to be good for their electoral success. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, Politicology's most popular psychology professor, Katherine Sanderson. Katherine holds a PhD in psychology from Princeton University and is now the Polar Family Professor and Chair of the Psychology Department at Amherst College. She's the author of a terrific book called Why We Act, Turning Bystanders into Moral Rebels. Catherine, good morning. Thanks for making the time today. Thank you so much for the return invite. And I will also share, uh, Ron, that I gave a talk to incoming first years at Amherst uh, in August and a student came up at the end and said... I just want you to know that I love whenever you're on Politicology. It's my favorite <laughs> podcast. So I don't know if your demographic skews to 18 to 21 year olds, but well, she was basically so. that was like my biggest accomplishment in terms of, of, of her view of me. So there we Give go. Give her a shout out. Uh, I'm glad to hear it. I, I welcome more young people, young listeners to the show. That's fantastic. Also returning to the roundup is James Lynch. James is a veteran of John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign. He led the war room on Howard Schultz's 2020 presidential effort and has more than a decade of experience in strategic and crisis communications, working with professional and collegiate sports organizations and Fortune 500 companies. James, how you doing? Thanks for making the time. I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Ron. On this week's roundup, step right up, step right up. The Donald Trump circus is back in full swing. And we'll also look at the surprising criticism from high-profile members of the Republican Party. We'll also discuss the protests in China and the struggle for democracy worldwide. And then we'll dive into the political hobbyism that has entered the workforce. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to discuss the Respect for Marriage Act that passed the Senate this week with a dozen Republican votes and the seismic shift in support for same-sex marriage over the last 15 years on both sides of the aisle. If you want to pull up a chair and join us for that, a Politicology Plus subscription gets you the private and ad-free version of the show with additional episodes that aren't on the public version. And there are two ways to get it. Option one is to sign up directly with us at politicology.com slash plus. And that gets you a link you can use in any major podcast player. Option two, if you only listen to us in the Apple Podcast app, you can navigate to the Politicology Show there and tap the button that says try free. We'll dig in right after this. All right. So we're less than a month into Donald Trump's third presidential campaign. (laughs) The circus is back in full swing. On the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, Trump was planning to have a private dinner at Mar-a-Lago with Ye, however you pronounce it, the rapper formerly known as Kanye West, but the events turned into a debacle. Uh, West arrived with three guests, including the white nationalist and anti-Semite Nick Fuentes. After the dinner, After the news of the dinner broke, Trump said that he did not know Fuentes or his background when they had dinner together. That's something that Fuentes confirmed in an interview. Trump's campaign is um, now putting vetting and gatekeeping measures into place. One wonders why now, (laughs) why it took this uh, to to bring about uh, that practice. But on Wednesday, West 
posted a Mar-a-Lago debrief video where he claimed that he chastised Trump for not doing enough to help those arrested during the January 6th attack at the Capitol. West also said that he asked Trump, wait for it, to be his running mate in 2024, which did not please the Donald. A longtime Trump advisor gave an anonymous quote to NBC News saying that West brought Fuentes to grab headlines. The quote was, the master troll got trolled. Kanye punked Trump. After the dinner, several high-profile members of the Republican Party condemned the meeting and Fuentes. Uh, Senate, still minority leader Mitch McConnell, said on Tuesday, quote, there is no room in the Republican Party for anti-Semitism or white supremacy. And anyone meeting with people advocating that point of view, in my judgment, are highly unlikely to ever be elected president of the United States, end quote. House minority leader and Republican nominee for speaker in the next Congress, Kevin McCarthy, said, I don't think anybody should be spending any time with Nick Fuentes. He has no place in this Republican Party. I think President Trump came out four times and condemned him and didn't know who he was, end quote. Trump has not denounced Fuentes uh, as of when McCarthy spoke to reporters. Former Vice President Mike Pence said, Trump was wrong to give a white nationalist, an anti-Semite, and a Holocaust denier a seat at the table. I think he should apologize for it, end quote. New Jersey Governor Chris Christie said it was another example of an awful lack of judgment from Trump. Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa called the meeting ridiculous. And my personal favorite, Senator Mitt Romney, said, quote, I think it's disgusting to invite people like that to meet with a former president of the United States. It's been clear that there's no bottom to the degree to which President Trump will degrade himself and the nation. <sighs> so, James, let's start with you. The fact that this meeting happened uh, isn't, isn't really surprising for Trump. And to be honest with you, when we were talking about, you know, uh, pieces of news that we were going to discuss this week, I didn't even really want to talk about this. Not because I don't think it's significant, but because it's just, it's not surprising at all to me. Um, but we're talking about it because Donald Trump is currently the only pre the only person, you know, announced for president right now. And so what I'm more interested in is that Republicans have decided to actually criticize him for it. So what do you think that says about the changes in the political climate? That's a good question, Ron. And what the, the situation that I'm thinking about is back to 2016. That was a time when the Republican elite, the establishment brushed off Trump. The Daily Beast called him uh, an entertainer and they weren't going to cover him. And he, you know, he was courting controversy and seemingly not being taken seriously. That's where we are right now with Donald Trump as well. And that's a dangerous, we know that that's a dangerous place to be. So I'm thinking of it as we have to take this seriously. We should not be surprised by Donald Trump or anything he does, but he is a former president who is currently running for president and so far is the front runner, obviously. This type of stuff has to be taken seriously. And when he gives a statement saying, he, he said something to the effect of talking about him and Kanye, him and uh, Yee. Anyway, we got along great. He expressed no anti-Semitism. And I appreciate all the nice things he said about me on Tucker Carlson. It, that was Trump's statement on Truth Social. You know, when do you ever have to say to someone, oh, we got along great. 
he didn't express any anti-Semitism. You know, it's just a ridiculous situation to be in. That might be something you say about like your crazy uncle at Thanksgiving. You know, Thanksgiving dinner was great. Grandpa expressed no anti-Semitism. You know, like it's just a crazy situation for that, for, for the president of the United States to be giving out that statement and having it be a, um, an excuse. Catherine, you've talked about and written about uh, Senator Romney's willingness to criticize Trump. We've talked about it on the show before, but the more widespread criticism is new here. Um, and as we've discussed recently uh, on the show, Trump is in a much weaker position than he was before the midterms, namely because he has been or had been more irrelevant than he ever was before, except now he is the only declared candidate for president, which makes him relevant again. So in any case, there's probably less risk involved now for these other members of the Republican Party. But I wonder what would lead to more people criticizing him, especially when many of them held their tongues through the last seven years. Yeah, it's really fascinating because you are seeing, I think really for the first time, some people calling out Trump by name. But it's also important to note that there is a real range. So I thought McConnell's statement was actually wrong because McConnell should have said somebody wouldn't be reelected because somebody actually was elected. Uh, he's simply talking about a reelection. But McConnell's statement, McCarthy's statement, have not really condemned Trump at all. It's been somebody shouldn't and we don't agree with this and this isn't part of the Republican Party. But other people, Chris Christie, Mike Pence, I think in particular, have said Trump, like used his name, Trump was wrong and Trump should apologize. And so to me, what we're seeing is that people are trying to find lanes. Most of the people that you mentioned who have come out and said something are aspiring in some way to either run or to support an alternative to Trump. And the question is, what's the lane they're trying to find? So Mike Pence, I think, is clearly trying to find the lane of, hey, I was his running mate. I was his guy. I was with him all the way until this. And now I'm going to distance myself. And I think his book was a step towards that. I think some of his interviews have, have been a step towards that. I think his comment was a step towards that. I think there are other people that are like, no, I'm still totally with him. I don't like that Fuentes guy, but I'm still totally with Trump. And to me, it's sort of seeing in the Republican Party People are trying to find their lanes and there are more lanes open now because there is an alternative to Trump. And I think clearly, as, as you've discussed in the podcast, the midterms did not go well for Trump. And so all of a sudden people are sort of seeing, hey, maybe the election denying supporting Trump pathway didn't really pan out so much in Arizona or in Pennsylvania, you know, even in Georgia, hence we have a runoff. And so I think it's really opening an opportunity for, for people to try to think about what is my lane. And it's interesting to see the different sort of positions they're staking out. Can I, I just want to follow up on that really quick, because we talk about a lot, your concept of moral rebels and uh, and how we have needed more of them and how much we had wished for more Republicans to step up and criticize Trump, especially during some of the most awful episodes of his presidency. And now I wonder how you think about what our response should be to the Republicans who are fine, only now stepping up, uh, in particular Mike Pence. Um, in the frame of moral rebellion, What's the right response for us to extend to the people who are now uh, condemning some of the worst impulses that he has? 
Right. Love that question. So when we think about moral rebels, they're basically people who take personal risk, right? They're people who are willing to be ostracized. They're willing to be disliked. They're willing to be accused of whistleblowing or ratting or whatever. So so moral rebels are taking a stand and they're willing to risk social inhibition and social consequences for doing so. Inherently, Mike Pence doing so after he's learned that, oh, Trump isn't quite as popular as he used to be. And oh, yeah, there's this evidence that in fact, he wanted you to be hung and your family. That's not moral rebellion. And any of the people who are coming out now, they're not doing it because of the political consequences. In fact, they're really doing a calculation that, oh, maybe to stick with Trump now isn't such a good idea. And and the key is, what would people be saying if we were looking at Governor Kerry Lake, you know, uh, Governor Mastriano, you know, et cetera. If we were looking at the success of Senator Herschel Walker and so on, I don't think a lot of those people would be being speaking out now against Trump. Now, I put Romney in a totally different category because Romney has risked and he's risked and he's risked again. And if we look at the Republicans who voted for impeachment, is it eight of 10? Are not with us. Eight of 10 were defeated. Yeah. So eight of 10, I mean, we're defeated or didn't run, right? Right. We're defeated and will not be with us in January, right? Will not be with us in January, but two will be, two will be. And so those to me are the moral rebels who took a stand when it was hard. And being a moral rebel means you are taking a stand when it's hard, not when it's a calculation. Hey, there's, here's my new path. It's speaking out (laughs) against, you know, anti-Semitism. You know, now that's my path. Yeah, I think it's really important the distinction you draw between uh, between the Romney, the Romneys, and the people who now who are seeing new pathways open up in front of them that are politically expedient. I, I, it's a really important thing to keep in mind because we do tend to uh, use a shorthand about all Republicans who you know, and and I think it's important to keep that um, keep that in mind. Uh, James, last week we talked about how party insiders were window shopping for alternatives to Trump. Republican leaders have been more frank about Trump's drag on the midterms than we would have expected. And now we're seeing this round of criticism. How do you think the responses by the Republican uh, elite will change the way the base responds to Trump, Um, you know, especially while he's still the only person running for president? And then, um, Catherine, I want to go to you after that, because I'd love for you to fill us in a little bit on what we know about elite signals from uh, or, or cues signaling from from elites, especially in poll, uh, survey research, you, you know, how this changes public opinion and attitudes. James? Catherine was on this path, and I agree with her, that, you know, we've, we've heard the instant reactions from the GOP establishment, but what I'm really waiting for is the poll numbers from Trump's base. How are they going to respond from this meeting? Because in the Republican Party right now, the tail wags the dog. and the rank and file of the GOP has clung to Trump even after January 6th, and they are still the deciders of GOP or, or Trump's electoral fate if he's able to make it to primary day. If the base sticks with him, they you're going to see a rebound, a boomerang effect from all of these or a lot of these uh, legislators and leaders, and they're going to be right back with Trump. We've seen this happen before. We, we all watched the Access Hollywood tape back in 2015. They're going to cling right to him if it's going to be good for their electoral success. I think you're right that the tail wags the dog here with the base. Um, but 
Catherine, we also know from survey research, from 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 statistical science, that uh, that cues from cues from elites are one of the most potent ways of changing attitudes. Uh, and I I wonder how you weigh the differences here between you know the the basis influence on party leadership versus examples set by uh, party elites uh, to shape the behavior of the base. It's a fascinating question. And one, of course, that psychologists look at, political scientists look at. And I think it really illustrates sort of a tipping point. And the tipping point can go in lots of different directions. So I was really struck by old poll data, which I'm sure both of you know better than I do, Ron and James, but about how Republicans' view of McCain dropped substantially, right? That McCain was sort of national hero and obviously a presidential candidate viable presidential candidate, you know, in in a lot of ways. And then all of a sudden, after his vote for the Affordable Care Act, you know, and continuing that really became, oh, you know, he's a problem. And and I think that was a, a real example of Trump swaying the base Republican Party to no longer think of John McCain as a national hero, which is sort of mind boggling I think for many of us, Republicans and Democrats alike, it's it's hard to imagine somebody who served this country in so many different ways, regardless of your view about his political beliefs. John McCain seems like a clear example of a national hero. So to me, I think it's really, to me, the real clear question here is, how big is Trump's base? And I don't think we have an answer to that. So I do think people are making an analysis right now that Trump's base does not appear to be sufficient to win some elections. And that may be true more for statewide elections, of course, than primaries uh, in terms of House seats in which, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to win, even even if people uh, find it problematic. And so to me, I, I still think it's an open question because I don't think we know how big Trump's base is. But I also think that as you have more and more Republican elites speaking out, I think it does make a difference. I think we see the fact that uh, Brian Kemp did quite well in Georgia compared to Stacey Abrams and Herschel Walker was not able to capture that success. And certainly Trump was speaking very strongly about the benefits of Herschel Walker. He was not a fan, of course, of Kemp's and that didn't work. So to me, I think it's still a question as to how big is the base and who is the base paying attention to? But it seems like the base is not fully paying attention to Trump anymore. And to some extent, his sway is less powerful. There are real life consequences to this type of dinner. Um, yesterday, th- you know, this isn't directly related, but all of this is related in some way. Yesterday, NBC News had a, ran a headline, DHS, Department of Homeland Security, warns of domestic terror threats to LGBTQ, Jewish, and migrant communities. And in that statement, the uh, it says, asked if a recent anti-Semitic remarks by Ye, the rapper formerly known as Kanye, contributed to the increased threats to Jewish people, a senior DHS official said any high-profile official or celebrity trafficking in conspiracy theories only serves to ignite violence among extremists. The synagogue right down the street from me, where I live in New Jersey, just put up these concrete barriers, permanent concrete barriers in front of the synagogue. I mean, it was a chilling thing to watch them just even put them up in front of a place of worship. And this is the type of thing that this is just unacceptable from our leaders. There are real life consequences. It's not a game. 
Last week, at least 10 people died during a fire at a residential building in Urumqi, the capital of the Xinjiang region of China. Residents said that the rescue efforts were delayed by barriers installed for COVID lockdowns, and they took to the streets to express their outrage. You've probably seen clips of this uh, floating all over social media. The protests in Urumqi inspired similar protests in major cities across China, including in Beijing and Shanghai, uh, against the government's zero COVID strategy. Some of the protesters used the opportunity to criticize Xi Jinping's autocratic leadership and to call for political reform. And the fire came after more than 100 days of lockdown in Xinjiang. These are the largest scale protests mainland China has seen in years. And PBS News is putting it as the largest protest in 30 years. Even before the January 6th attack, we were talking a lot about the fact that American democracy is under attack. And we're seeing that still in the attempts to subvert our elections and and throw out legally cast votes after elections. Our friend Ann Applebaum wrote a book about how we could be witnessing the twilight of democracy. Uh, But just in the last couple months, we've seen protests in Iran and now in China. Ukraine is currently defending itself from an authoritarian regime that wants to take over their country and and beyond. So I wonder first, uh, with that context, what both of your reactions to these protests has been and just in general, how you're thinking about it. And then we'll we'll dig into the the meat and some of the response to these. Uh, Catherine, do you want to lead off? So it strikes me as very clear that there's been some kind of a tipping point reached in terms of China and that all of a sudden the very, very stringent COVID policies that have been widely accepted by the Chinese people, you know, far more than the United States. If we look at, you know, what happened in 2020 in which there were, you know, big protests against wearing masks and governors refusing to implement policies, you know, and so on, that that we've really seen a lot of adherence within China. And for some reason, there is now this tipping point. But the challenge becomes that once the Chinese government has staked out the zero COVID claim, it becomes very difficult to back off of it. And I'll just say on a personal note, when I've read about this, the protests in China, it actually strikes me as quite similar to what's happening at my institution, which is that Amherst has taken a very stringent COVID policy from the beginning, which for a long time I think was quite impressive. But this fall, we have all had to wear N95 masks in the classrooms. Yes. And so this is not on video for most of you, but Ron just, you know, acted like he'd been stung by a bee. Yes. So uh, this fall, and this again is, is a campus in which every single student and faculty member and staff is required to be vaccinated and boosted. So it's a campus that is fully vaccinated and boosted. I'm safer in my classroom than I am going to Walmart. And yet all fall, we have had to wear in 95 masks in every classroom setting. And eventually I actually went to a faculty meeting and said, this is an absurd policy. It's just absolutely an absurd policy. And I am, and I'm pleased to note that as of November 16th, it is now mask optional in classrooms, again, up to the professors. But, uh, but to me, that was really an illustration of Amherst had staked out this like very, very strong case. And it became, I think, psychologically very difficult for them to back off of it. And so the problem with the Chinese government now is they have this policy and there's not zero COVID. And by all intents and purposes, COVID's going to be with us forever. So is China just going to be permanently in lockdown 
for the duration of time, it becomes very hard once somebody has a position to back off of it. And I think the Chinese government has really gotten themselves in a tricky position. I think we ought to do our listeners a favor and just reprise the consistency principle here to explain why it's so hard to back off of a position that you've taken, especially one so public. Can you do that? Sure. So the consistency principle, uh, Bob Cialdini is uh, the creator of this to give credit where credit's due, is that we like to be consistent ideologically. And we like to be consistent because it makes us feel good about ourselves, that when we have a position, we hold it. And it's very difficult for us to then admit maybe I was wrong. So some of your listeners may think of this in terms of cognitive dissonance, this idea that holding two disconfirming thoughts together creates an unpleasant sense of arousal. So the idea of, I really believe that we should wear N95 masks in a college classroom, and then also thinking, what is the relative likelihood on a fully vaccinated campus that COVID is going to cause great harm? It's very hard for people to hold two competing positions in mind at a time. And so once someone has staked out a position, it becomes very hard for them to let it go because doing so may require, hey, I was wrong. And that could be about the zero COVID policy in China. It could be about the Amherst colleges requiring N95 masks in the classroom. It could be about, I used to support Trump, now I don't. I mean, it, it could apply to lots of different things. Thank you for that. Uh, I, it, it's it's so fun to me when we get to weave psychology into our into our political discussion because it's so relevant. And psychology is everywhere. The, Let's just be it's, clear. It's psychology it's everywhere. is everywhere because yeah. we're people. Because there are people who are in the world. That because we're be people. Wild, yes, uh, uh, we talked about this a lot as uh, as masking guidelines and COVID guidelines were changing, were evolving because it isn't just this doesn't just come up when. It, you you learn that you might have been wrong. It also comes up when the facts change, when circumstances change. You still are sort of forced to revisit a previous position that you've taken, and that was something I think that was very difficult for uh, for for leadership to do, especially as um, as as the as the circumstances evolved vis a vis COVID. James, um, before before we dig in any further, what was your reaction? What has been your reaction to these to these protests, and how are you thinking about it in the in the broader context of of uh, protests around the globe? Yeah, it's interesting you put it that way because um, as a nation, America was really quick. I think the White House was quick to put out a statement in support of the Iranian protests. And I don't know how much we've seen officially about the Chinese protests from the White House. And, you know, for good reason, you know, <laughs> I, I, I get it. I understand the difficulty here. Um, but we see that with Apple as well. Apple uh, is, is, is uh, catching a lot of flack for the decisions that they are giving in to the CCP, the, the uh, Chinese Communist Party. And um, there's a real reckoning here among uh, technology and uh, authoritarian governments, and especially American-owned technology. Uh, there's a lot of decisions that have to be made here of how much do we actually uh, want to support authoritarian governments um, with uh, poor human rights records. So you mentioned Apple, and one of the key tools protesters against authoritarian regimes have used over the last several years is Apple's AirDrop feature on iPhones. It lets you create a connection between two phones rather than over the internet. So it's beyond the scope of the internet content moderators. And we know the government of China aggressively controls the internet there. In 2019, during the Hong Kong protests, demonstrators shared messages and literature with passersby using the AirDrop open network. In mid-October, a demonstrator in Beijing used AirDrop to share a poster 
Earlier this month, Apple issued an update for phones sold in mainland China that limited the ability to use AirDrop. So previously, you'd be able to set up your device so that you could get messages from anyone. And now with this update, you can only enable that feature for 10 minutes and you would need to reset it every 10 minutes in order to receive messages. This is just for China. So recently, we've seen more Americans spend you know, more time thinking about how large companies interact with politics, uh, from Disney's response to the Don't Say Gay law to pressure for companies to not do business in Georgia after their new voting laws were passed. So what do you think is driving these decisions about wanting to buy from businesses that align with your values? And how much of a factor do you think actions outside the United States play into that? So as I mentioned, um, you know, Apple's, and you've talked about Apple's having a real problem with uh, what they recently did in China, but they've kind of done this sort of thing before. And um, a lot of companies uh, do this uh, type of dance in China. When I was working with Howard Schultz, as he thought about running for president, um, obviously, you know, he he worked with the Chinese uh, business uh, administration a lot on uh, getting Starbucks to open up in China. And there are hundreds of Starbucks in China now. And um, he would always say, this was 2019, that China is not our enemy. They are our competitor. And I always kind of got chills down my neck when I heard that because from a, from a business person's point of view, that's right. But from a national security point of view, I don't necessarily agree with that assessment. And, um, you know, it's a it's nice to support companies that align with our social mission. Starbucks certainly, you know, cr- blazed a path in that um, early on as a company. But um, when it comes down to it, are we willing to pay? You know, I have no idea what it would cost, but are we willing to pay $2,500 for an iPhone? Right. Is Apple going to be such a big company and be able to provide us with these technical innovation innovations if it doesn't have the labor that it has in China? Yeah. I, th- I mean, I think that's a, that is the question. What is the economic pain we're willing to tolerate in order for corporations to act the way we want them to? Uh, it's, a, it's a big question. Yeah. Uh, and, know. you know, when it comes to corporations, we vote with our wallets. And uh, consumers are free to choose how they want. Um, but especially in the sense of Apple, you know, you really only have one competitor. If you want to get a cell phone, you know, there's not much out there to, uh, get a cell phone. So it is kind of concerning that, uh, the one company that Americans are probably most identified with is, uh, having some trouble right now with censorship in China and support from the CCP. Catherine, any thoughts? So I think we know that in general, Americans focus much more on America, that that Americans are not great global citizens. And I think that there is, I think it is probably optimistic to think about Americans spending a lot of time thinking about, well, what's happening in China? I think it feels very far away. I think it feels very distant. And so if we look at what happened early in the COVID pandemic, I remember in January and February of 2020, Americans sat around saying, boy, I'm really glad I don't live in China. You know, that sounds really bad. What's going on there? And there was actually much more, I think, outpouring of what was happening in Italy. What was happening in Italy seemed very, very sad. What was happening in China seemed much more distant. So I think that the closer it feels to people within the United States, the more it's going to be impactful. And that might be why 
there's not such a concern about what's happening in terms of China or even awareness of what's happening in China. And I think the contrast is what's happening right now in the United States. So the example of Disney being forced to sort of say, hey, we kind of don't agree with the don't say gay law. This is actually problematic. That's very immediate. It's very clear. It's very local. I think we see that to some extent with what's happening in terms of abortion laws in different states when people are worried about, hey, if I go and work for this company that is headquartered in Dallas and I have a miscarriage, maybe I'll die. That That's literally a concern. And so I think the challenge is that things that feel more immediate are going to influence American views much more. Americans in general, I think, are woefully not focused on big international issues. And I think that's especially true if you look at Asia or Africa compared to Europe. I think that's right. I, I think it's also that we are we are very disconnected from what is actually a very tight relationship with uh, between us and our technology. We're very disconnected with the relationship that we actually have uh, through our technology with China, where it comes from. Uh, how like so much of our modern lives is reliant on stuff that's 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 made and maintained in China. And we don't think about that at all. We think about Apple as an American company, and indeed it is, but it is only a successful American company because of China. Um, and, and we don't have a, that's not in our zeitgeist. It's not in our consciousness, really, when we, when we pull out our phones and we interact with our technology. It's just not. James? Yeah, one of the other things that happened today, or maybe overnight, is uh, the Chinese internet watchdog, which is part of the government, has asked Chinese internet companies to pick up their censoring, to increase their censorship because of these protests and because of all the videos and everything that's being shared. I mean, there's, it's no surprise that the one symbol from this protest that is being echoed around the world is just a blank piece of white paper because everything else gets censored. And how do you censor a blank piece of white paper? I mean, it, it is just, it, it's to the point of censorship in China, why we don't, why we can't really relate with, to a lot of this is because we don't get a chance to see a lot of it. It is a much more closed society than we have in America. So it's hard to relate to it. This is really the first chance that a lot of these people have ever had to protest. That's actually a really nice segue. I want to turn to our third segment, which is uh, instead of the relationship between uh, corporations and consumers, I want to talk about the relationship between corporations and their employees and their employee bases. This is something that we've talked about a lot on the show because it is extremely politically significant. Uh, and there was a piece in The Atlantic um, earlier this week published by a Tufts political science professor, Eitan Hirsch, um, about political hobbyism, as he calls it, uh, in the workplace. Hirsch defines political hobbyism as following the news, debating issues, signing an online petition, or making a donation to a candidate without working actually to influence how the government operates. Um, he, uh, in a previous piece, uh, he described political hobbyism uh, this way. Political hobbyism is to public affairs what watching Sports Center is to playing football. <laughs> and that was back in January of 2020. So he, you know, he's, he's currently working on a book about how business leaders and companies shape American politics, but in doing his research, he was struck by 
the ways American politics is reshaping corporate life, particularly with the rise of political hobbyism in the workplace. And he noted a few reasons why the conversations at the water cooler have taken a more distinctly political bent. Uh, the first is the, the white-collar corporate workforce has undergone a partisan realignment, which we've talked about many times on the show. You know, we've talked about how college-educated voters are now voting overwhelmingly for Democrats. And these Democratic voters are also more enthusiastic about businesses taking a public stand on political priorities, and in particular, their political priorities. There's been a shift among CEOs to take a bigger stand on social issues since the 2016 election. And then the second factor is the long-running decline of civic life and civic organizations in America. Many Americans who are uh, cognitively engaged in politics, who follow the news and think about political issues, lack a social organization to channel their political energy into besides the office. And then the last factor he outlined was the workplace cultural shift among leaders and employees' expectations of their managers. Managers have learned to be empathetic leaders about uh, empathetic leaders who need to care about what workers care about. That's what he put it. Now, one of the criticisms Hirsch makes is that because the office is not a community of equals, when a manager injects politics into a conversation, employees feel compelled to nod along and give the boss the false impression that everyone agrees with them. And one executive said this extended into subjects like diversity, equity, and inclusion, which has been very controversial. The executive said that he sees diversity differently than his employer. Quote, the organization just likes diversity in the way people look, not diversity in the way people think. He argued that the firm hires people from across the racial and ethnic spectrum, but from a narrow set of universities and people who tend to hold the same liberal viewpoints. It's also worth noting, Hirsch helped design a survey in 2021 that showed 57% of Democrats and a much higher proportion of Black and Latino Democrats said private employers should prohibit workers from expressing political views that are offensive to some. And most Republicans in that survey disagreed. Um, you know, speaking honestly at a DEA training or in a political discussion is difficult if most of your coworkers think your views are not, are, are not only wrong, but perhaps should be banned from the office. And that was a, a quote from the piece. So, you know, it also looks like this is impacting corporate culture more than it does other businesses and workplaces. In his interviews with industrialists and retailers, um, Hirsch found a wildly different perspective is evident. Um, especially in more blue-collar uh, companies, uh, one executive said, quote, you are talking about a problem that is just utterly foreign to my world. <laughs> and that's an executive who oversees a chain of beauty salons. Um, and he describes his firm as a, quote, working-class Southern multicultural company, end quote, with an entirely female retail staff and said he views political talk at work as a frivolous distraction. So that's a long windup, but I found this article absolutely fascinating because it got at so many of the threads that we've been discussing uh, on, on the podcast, you know, early on that we sort of were, we get, were beginning to see this in, in survey data, in, in demographic data, and now political scientists are studying it specifically in the, in the subculture of blue collar versus white collar uh, companies, corporate culture. So I just found it really, really interesting. Um, and I'd love to know how you are both thinking about the way office culture has become more political and what you, what you made of the piece. Um, Catherine, what did it bring up for you? 
So first, he would be a wonderful podcast guest. Really would. Uh, yes. I was on a panel with him when we both had books out during the pandemic, a virtual panel. And I think you'd really enjoy him. So I'll, I'll just put a plug in there. So when I read his piece, what actually occurred to me was a story from the 2016 election. Of course, I teach at Amherst College. And the mood of the campus following Trump's election can only be prepared to the mood of the campus following 9-11, that the mood on the campus the next day, and I've, I've taught there since 97, so Republicans have been elected, Democrats have been elected, but after Trump's election, the president of the college sent out a very you know, thoughtful email about how this might be a difficult day for some people and a lot of emotions and people should take time and professors should think about if they wanted to teach. There was really this sort of sense of national tragedy. Again, I teach at Amherst, Massachusetts, the only state in the country in which in 2016, not a single county in Massachusetts voted for Trump. So it was it was quite a, a moment. However, I have a colleague who was a, in political science, a very longtime dear friend of Scalia. And he, in his seminar that day, brought a bottle of champagne, opened it with his students and said, I have been waiting to celebrate. And I remember thinking that as a professor, I'm pretty certain my students can tell how I vote, certainly if they listen to this podcast, but I am very careful to not give a political view about lots of different things. I, I try to make a point about that so that students who are pro-life versus pro-choice you know, could feel equally comfortable expressing those views in my classroom. But what occurred to me is that I think things really have changed in which now companies saying, I don't support Black Lives Matter after George Floyd's murder becomes problematic. And, and I really do think it's interesting to think about what's responsible for that shift because I really do think there's been a sense of we shouldn't have political views in the workplace, that those shouldn't be there. The famous quote by Michael Jordan, well, you know, even Republicans buy sneakers. That sort of view of, hey, you know, we got to have everyone appeal to everything. But I really do think there's been a big shift and it's fascinating to sort of think about what are the correlates of that shift. Yeah, it, it really is. There's so many directions, uh, so many questions I have. I'd love to talk to the professor. Um, uh, James, what did what did this bring up for you? What did, what did it make you think of? I, I agree with Catherine that... It, there is something new about this since probably about 2016 or so. You know, we had uh, a lot of... It, first, I think a lot of this happened in sports, actually, right? We saw uh, the NCAA take games out of certain states because of bathroom laws um, and that sort of stuff. And it has really expanded to most social issues at this point. But that is what is at the forefront of what we are talking about as a country. In fact, if you're a Republican candidate for president today, social issues are probably at the forefront of what you're talking about. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to talk about this later in the plus segment, um, so I won't go too much into it, but I think there is a short-sightedness on a lot of the people who are going to be running for president on the GOP side that these culture shot, shots that they're taking um, are not going to age well. And it's going to be a real problem, I think, if the Republican Party focuses on things like 
Mr. Potato Head and transgender bathrooms and uh, who's playing what sports on what teams. Um, that's just not where our country is uh, economically. And it's not where uh, we want to be. Uh, it's, it's not the discussion that we want to have in 2024. Yeah. The, the, you know, the, the feature of this um, shift that stands out most to me is the, is the bright line that just appears between, you know, we're talking about corporate cultures, but there's a bright line separating blue collar and white collar corporate cultures very clearly from, from what I, from what I gather in his work. And that just to me underscores how, how significant uh, class and education are in our, in our, in modern day polarized politics, anti-partisan politics. Um, and I, I think it's a trend that's not slowing down and, and it's, it's, it's very concerning to me. Um, you know, going back to 2016, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is the, is the, not, not necessarily the income gap, but the wealth gap, uh, that exists and is widening in this country. And, um, and our absolute failure to address it constructively without the, uh, from what I think is irresponsible rhetoric that um, leads to sort of class warfare, uh, but in a really thoughtful, methodical way, nobody has really stepped up to um, to to offer real solutions uh, to this. Not that I've not that I've seen so far. Uh, but that's, that's the feature of this that I'd love to dig into more maybe with the professor. And I, I know Mike Madrid has lots of thoughts on this, but, um, but it's, but it was the class and education distinction between the blue collar and white collar workforces here that seem to be experiencing politics in, uh, in the workplace completely different ways, completely different ways. Um, so yeah, any, any closing thoughts? I, we're not going to solve this problem, but I wanted to bring it to our readers' attention. We'll link to it in the show notes if you want to read the piece. It's very good. Um, and, and if you've been a longtime listener of the show, a lot of this will start to sound familiar. And, um, and I thought it was very validating in the way we've been talking about uh, the, the, the constituencies shifting within the Republican and Democratic parties, where the Democratic Party is becoming much more uh, white-collar and educated affluent and the Republican party going the opposite direction, attracting lots of, uh, minority voters, uh, racial and ethnic minorities, and also, um, uh, lower, lower education, lower socioeconomic status voters. So I just want to touch real quick on the death of community and kind of, or, or the transformation of community, really the town square has moved from, you know, uh, places, community gatherings, like, there's a famous book that was written in 2001 called Bowling Alone. And it's all about how these communities that people used to attend, whether it be uh, going to a uh, veterans hall and having a beer with your buddies or going uh, out and doing whatever with your other group of friends, book club, whatever it might be. These sort of things have moved online and there are less and less people that are actually gathering physically. And that has an effect. People aren't going to church or to a, a religious institution as much. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily a problem in itself, but those institutions generally do teach things that are, you know, the golden rule, that type of stuff, how to be kind to one another. And when we don't have that type of stuff hitting our kids at a young age, besides just their parents and school, we need 
other places for kids or we need other influences in their lives so that they are able to have discussions with people and be able to go there just as as we're seeing adults need to have that outlet as well. And that's why it's in the workplace because they have nowhere else. They're not talking about, not going anywhere else with people to talk about these things. You know, I think they should be talked about. I don't necessarily know where I'm fine if they talk about wherever, but, um, it would be great if we were able to get back to uh, building relationships, physical relationships with people, because COVID has really devastated that aspect of our lives. Catherine, what were you going to say? So I was going to say two things. One, it strikes me that if we think about Maslow's hierarchy, again, talking about psychology, that when yeah. we think about the base of Maslow's hierarchy, it's things like, do you have food? Do you have safety? And to some extent, the blue collar, white collar divide may be that it's a luxury to get to sit around and think about, well, I have these different job offers, which company is most in line with my values and beliefs? And there might be other people who say, my kids are going to be hungry if I don't have a job and I am going to drive for Amazon, regardless of if I like what they're doing because I need to put food on the table. So to, to some extent, I wonder if it's really about the distinction in terms of the income gap and mm. political affiliation is basically who gets to have the luxury of thinking about the political orientation mm. of their employer and that some people may have that luxury and some people may not. So that would be first. My second thought, and this really goes very much in line with what James said, is that I also think that there's lots of evidence that we're becoming more insular in terms of our worlds, that people are not only going to school with people or having professors with particular orientations or going to college or not, but they're also living in particular neighborhoods. They're living in particular states. They're living in particular communities. That's why when we talk about red states and blue states, it's very silly because Basically, every state is lots of red and lots of blue, and it sort of is an urban-rural divide, and all cities have some urban and some rural. And last week was Thanksgiving, and I spent it with my relatives in New Jersey, and we gathered from lots of different places. So I have relatives on my mom's side who live in Alabama and Georgia. And I have relatives on my dad's side who live in Utah and Idaho. So those are very different places than Massachusetts and New Jersey and California, my last three states of residence. And to some extent, that's an unusual experience that having the opportunity to spend Thanksgiving dinner with people who hunt and people who don't hunt, that I would be on the don't hunting side, uh, people who I am certain pulled the lever in very different ways at the midterm elections. So I think part of it is that we're seeing more insularity in terms of our worlds, our workplaces, our communities, our neighborhoods, and to some extent, even our families. And that makes it, I think, much harder to show empathy and perspective for one another. I, that's such a good point. And, and you survived Thanksgiving. And I did survive. I mean, we, we very uh, carefully, I think, I think everyone actually felt lucky that we have an annual Thanksgiving gathering. And I will say that I think multiple people said, thank goodness that the 2020 gathering was canceled due to COVID. I'll just say that, <laughs> that, that I think there was a lot of celebration in my family that that particular Thanksgiving might've been a hard one. So yes. Everyone agreed. There we go. That's right. Thank goodness for COVID. 
Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what we are watching. Uh, this used to be an under the radar segment. Then it's an over. It's a, it's an over under wherever you want. James, what are you keeping your eye on? Sure. So I am uh, becoming mildly obsessed with all things China. And I, even though we talked about it, I want to plug this podcast from The Economist called The Prince. And it's all about the upbringing of uh, Xi Jinping and you know, kind of a background into his leadership style and who he is today. Along the way, I learned so much about the country and their politics. And um, listen, the only we're just going to be seeing more and more headlines about China. So um, I greatly did appreciate this podcast, and uh, and I'm happy to plug it here. It it is really good. I've I've only just begun it, um, but I'm but I'm looking forward to the rest of it. And I have to say, the host Su Lin is is really wonderful. She's really good at it. So I think. Uh, she may, she may be on politicology at uh, at some point, so um, so stay tuned. Uh, Catherine, what are you watching? So I'm watching to see if anything happens in terms of gun control efforts. I was struck that in the weeks leading to Thanksgiving, there was the tragic shooting at the University of Virginia. I have a dear friend, a maid of honor in my wedding, whose daughter is a first year student there, uh, and just the idea of those kids not heading home to Thanksgiving, of course, was heartbreaking. And then that's not even the most recent shooting. We have to think about what happened in Walmart in Virginia. And I just wonder if there is a a tipping point as we've discussed about so many things and as we will be discussing in the Politicology Plus segment about attitudes towards gay marriage, I just keep thinking as we approach what will be the, I believe, 10-year anniversary isn't the right word, but 10 years of the shooting at Sandy Hook, I believe, is this year. And those kids should be in college. Those kids should be in college this year. And I just keep thinking, is there any point at which there could be some bipartisan agreement about realistic gun control legislation and I keep thinking that we will hit that tipping point. We keep not. But there were sort of some rumors about maybe there could be. And I I am just so hopeful as a person, as a mom, as an American, that eventually maybe the gun situation in the United States will be less insane. All right, gang, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to talk about the Respect for Marriage Act and the seismic shift in support for same-sex marriage over the last 15 years on both sides of the aisle. Where can everybody find you on the internet? Are you still on the internet? <laughs> we, we've been doing this thing where like people are leaving Twitter and Twitter's not really a thing anymore. Like oh, it may, kind of it is, but people are watching and seeing. What are you doing on the internet? I am on, I am still on Twitter at Sanderson Speaks and I am regularly on Instagram at Sanderson Speaking. And James, where are you? Yeah, I, I pop up on Twitter at James G. Lynch. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. 
If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.